millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's back to the office for millions of Americans. Re-entry time. More people are exchanging loungewear for workwear. And for many of us, remote meetings are now being done in person again as COVID pandemic restrictions ease. In normal circumstances, we spend a lot of time with our colleagues. In this episode, we look at how to re-engage with others and how to make that time more satisfying and productive. Collaborating after COVID. Deb Mashak. Ninety-three percent of employers surveyed rated this ability to work in teams as critically important. Ninety-three percent. That's a lot. But here's the the fascinating contrast there is that few of us ever receive any real training in how to do this well. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? The past year and a half of COVID has tested us all, our health, our resilience, and our relationships with others. With more employers telling people they've got to show up in person, we thought it might be useful to talk about collaborating, how we work, play, and have friendships together. Deb Mashek was a tenured professor of social psychology at Harvey Mudd College before she became the first executive director of Heterodox Academy. And that's where we met her several years ago for a previous episode of How Do We Fix It? Now Deb is a small business owner. She doesn't like to be called an entrepreneur, so we'd be careful there. <laughs> who runs <laughs> who runs MyCo Consulting, which works with higher education and other leaders to cultivate collaborations to improve how their organizations can achieve their goals. Deb joins us from Staten Island, New York. Thanks for being with us again on How Do We Fix It? It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Do we all have a chance to reframe our relationships now that uh, more of us are meeting in person again? I I think we do. I mean, if you think about your own experience over the course of the pandemic, chances are you've changed. I know I've changed. All of our colleagues have changed. The nature of our relationship, that thing that exists between the two of us has changed. And certainly the, the workplace has changed. And I think it's useful to think about that those different layers and how all of these are shifting around, all of them can be reconsidered. Uh, you know, I keep hearing this idea that we're going back to normal. There, There is no normal. You can't step in the same river twice. Deb, we were talking before we got started, and you mentioned that now that people are meeting in person again and going in for in-office meetings and lunches and stuff with colleagues, 
that you find it a little bit exhausting. We've had so much time to do introspection over the past year and a half. And I think there's a real foundation to be had there in terms of knowing what our own preferences are, our own needs, our own wants, and being clear on those. And then having the confidence to articulate those to others, you know, whether it's, hey, I don't have the stamina to come into the city three more times this week. I'm going to pass on those lunches. Um, but setting up good boundaries is, is one of the opportunities here. The other is to be incredibly curious and open to what others have to say about their needs and wants, their preferences, where they are. Are we rusty at relationships now? Has COVID potentially made more of us introverts? Uh, yeah, this is such an interesting question because I do think a lot of us have had a chance to um, to settle into who we are separate from our workplace, separate from our relationships. I mean, I don't know about you all, but I've set up my workplace in a way that I wouldn't have if I was in the office. You know, I've got my water jug next to me now. I never would have done that before. My own snacks, the dimmer lighting, things that I didn't even know I had the option of manipulating when I was in the office, even though I was the boss. And so I don't think it's that we've become rusty necessarily in relationships, but I do think we've become more sure of who we are. And now we have to figure out how to do relationships within that certainty. The reason we get together in person with people for work or academic projects is to build things, to do things, plan things together. And you talk about different kinds of collaborations. You say there's an exchange collaboration versus a communal collaboration. What's the difference? The idea is that in an exchange relationship, the reason we're doing something is to get reciprocal um, benefits that are on par with whatever we gave. So for instance, I pay the bus driver, the bus driver gives me a ride across town, my employer pays me wages, I provide my time and talents to their to the organization's mission. Nothing wrong with those. But there are these other ways of doing and being um, that are characterized by what we call communal norms. And in communal norms, we engage with others, we do for others not to get immediate reciprocal benefit, but because we truly value and care for their outcomes, and we do it to, to benefit them with no expectation of immediate reciprocity. One of the fascinating things is that if you start engaging with someone, in a tit for tat sort of exchange way, but that person actually wants a more communal relationship with you, you can hurt their feelings. So there's an opportunity here in the workplace to deepen relationships, to deepen trust, to deepen that sense of feeling cared for, of caring for others. If we enact communal relationships is kind of our, our mode of being rather than those exchange norms. So if we're in a communal relationship, instead of asking what's in it for me, the goal is what's in it for we? I think that is such a clever turn of phrase, and I think I'm going to have to borrow that. And the more that we have that sense of we-ness, it, it influences how we share resources, how we share identities, how we share insights and perspectives. Uh, and this is true in our closest relationships, like with our friends and our family. And it's also true with workplace friendships. So Deb, now you're a, an expert on collaboration. Does your personal experience and research as a social psychologist help you with advising others on relationships and, and team building? Absolutely. So on the personal front, 
the the backstory here is that I grew up with very humble beginnings. My formative years were in a spent in a double wide trailer in Western Nebraska, and there was never any assumption that I would be going off to college, much less graduate school. So at some point, I entered these spaces of higher learning, and they felt very foreign to me. I and this happens with a lot of students, where it's just you feel like an outsider, and I wasn't sure how to engage or what the rules were, and it gave me a lot of time to observe. And I, at some point, had this insight of, oh my gosh, I'm seeing the world differently than these other people who are around me. And at first I thought that was a deficit. It was something that I I must have lacked. It was something I didn't have in my background. But later I came to see it as this was actually a really cool thing. It was a gift that I was able to have a different vantage point on whether it was a topic of conversation or an experience we were having outside of the classroom. And I started to, to share more of it and realize that A, people were interested, and B, people would start to say, oh, yeah, that's I have something similar. I'm thinking about it from this angle, too. This felt like an epiphany to me when I was when I was young. I really started to value the idea of social learning, the idea that we could learn alongside others who had a different vantage point, a different perspective, and that by learning alongside others, we actually get to see, experience more of the texture, more of the nuance of these problems, and I think ultimately become better problem solvers collectively because of that. So how do you apply those insights professionally? How do you you use that to help guide people to collaborate better? I went from that personal experience off to graduate school where I studied the psychology of close relationships. And I, you know, for two decades did research and teaching on everything from hooking up to breaking up, everything in between. And at some point started to realize that all those same theoretical lenses that we use to understand what's happening in close romantic relationships actually scale up to how we come to feel a part of a community and also how we collaborate So that's the framework I approach my advising and consulting work from. And I use those lenses every day. It's like they're bolted to my head. I can't take them off. And, you know, key questions that I always start with when I'm thinking about collaborative work is who is this other person? What are their needs and wants? What's driving them? So what's incentivizing their interest and engagement in this shared work? What needs aren't being met? So when things start to to tank and you get psychological reactance and resistance, what is that all about? And what might help this person or these individuals feel cared for, feel understood? How do we respond meaningfully and appropriately to each other's needs? How do we know and state what our own needs actually are? How do we develop trust? How do we develop a sense of weeness? Now, those are those are a bunch of different uh, things that need to be worked on by people when they're collaborating, when they're working in teams. Are we pretty bad at this? Are most organizations facing a real challenge when it comes to getting people to work in teams or in groups on a shared objective? Yes, we are challenged. So there was a a recent survey um, out by, it was the Association of American Colleges and Universities. So this was an employer survey. And they asked these employers, what is the most critical skill that you want recent college graduates to have? So they, they had framed it in terms of college graduates because that's a topic they're interested in. 
And 93% of employers surveyed rated this ability to work in teams as critically important. 93%, that's a lot. But here's the, the fascinating contrast there is that few of us ever receive any real training in how to do this well. And what do college students have to say? You have the findings of another survey by College Pulse, which is a data analytics firm. They conducted a survey over the summer where they asked college students, how much training have you received and how to make group work more fulfilling, productive, effective? And the answer was um, 87% said they had received no real training, at most a few minutes in how to do this well. So 93% of employers think this is important. 87% of college students are saying, hey, we're not getting it. And my guess is that that same number holds approximately true for non-college students as well. It's just not something we're, we're trained in. So then the question is, well, how do you actually improve it? And like all sorts of goal setting, um, all sorts of professional and personal development, the first thing to do is to articulate and describe your current state. So how would you characterize your current relationships at work, engaging with others in collaborative ways? Um, in what ways are those relationships, those collaborations serving your needs and interest? Where are they falling short? So that's kind of bucket number one. Bucket number two is to then characterize the desired state. So how do you want your relationships to look, to feel? What's the end goal? What In your ideal situation, what would the most brilliant, satisfying, productive workplace relationship collaboration, what would that actually look like? And then how do I move from where I am to where I need to be? Keeping in mind here, you can't control how other people are feeling or thinking or behaving. What you control is how you're thinking, feeling, and behaving. And so focusing um, on on developing your skill sets is, is the place to start. Two really accessible ways of doing that. One is to think about the role of self-disclosure in creating relationships. And the second one is to think about those communal and exchange relationships we talked about. So ways of enacting communal principles in your workplace. Self-disclosure. How does that work? Yeah. Self-disclosure. Such a great topic. So, you know, we sometimes hear that, oh, I want to keep my work self separate from my real self or separate from my non-work self. And then there's a kind of a contrasting narrative, which is I want to be able to bring my whole self to work. And the the truth of the matter is, is that self-disclosure being at least somewhat self-revealing is actually a really great way of generating relationship and closeness and the trust that tends to come with it. Does that mean you share everything about yourself? No. Um, but to say, to share both factual information about who you are and how, and then emotional information about how you're feeling about who you are or what you're doing is a great way of giving others the opportunity to be responsive to those disclosures. So taking the risk of being seen and also taking the time to actually see others and being responsive to what you see creates connection, closeness, trust, all those good things that we want to have in order. It, it becomes a, a resource, a foundation from which to do and be together in the workplace. 
Nevertheless, in most cases, Deb, work relationships are not the same as close friendships. There are boundaries involved, and negotiating or deciding what those boundaries are, that's a tricky thing, right? Yeah, it is. But thinking about the relationship as something worthy of investing in, both because it becomes more satisfying, I think, to be at work when I actually like the people um, I'm working with, but also as an employer, to those relationships become a resource for productivity, a resource for engagement, a resource for continue for longevity and commitment and loyalty to the organization also. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're speaking with Deb Mashek about collaborations. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Let's talk about the meeting. We've all been on Zoom meetings for <laughs> the last uh, couple of years, uh, and they're similar but different. If we learn bad habits that we have to unlearn, or what can we take as we make this transition back to face-to-face? So meetings are one of my favorite topics in part because I actually am one of the weirdos who really, really loves meetings. But the caveat there is that I love good meetings. <laughs> Boy, meetings are usually a source of dread. Well, can I ask, Richard, what is the dread? Okay. I think the dread is different for different people. I think for some people, they're nervous about being in a room perhaps with their boss or with somebody who they think is going to judge them. In my case, it's I just dread a poorly run meeting, a meeting that is a total waste of time. In so many cases, I've been in meetings that ran an hour and a half, and they could have been done in half an hour um, without any loss of true content or, or relationship building. The reason I love meetings is because I love well-structured, well-facilitated meetings that actually move forward our shared work with grace, with clarity. I mean, those can be so satisfying where you leave and you're like, oh man, we got some real thinking done or some real doing done together. But the meetings where it could have been an email, those are often about information exchange. It's often where there's just like this mushy container. We're not really sure why we're in the room together. It's such a mess. But there are some strategies we can use going into the meeting that can help those meetings be more productive and actually essential for our shared work. 
the most obvious piece of structure is the agenda. I cannot believe how many meetings just end up not having an agenda or the agenda is incredibly vague. So tip number one is know what kind of meeting you're going into. Tip number two is to have a freaking agenda. Um, If you don't, Godspeed. Tip number three is for each agenda item, make sure you're using a verb, as simple as that is, to explain what kind of doing or thinking you need to do together. So if the topic is, I don't know, conference, what about the conference? Are we finalizing the date? Are we putting together the request for proposals? Are we um, deciding on a venue? So a simple verb focuses the attention in an incredible way. And it lets us know when we're done with that agenda item and can actually move on. Another one is to know, to, to be really clear who needs to do what by when. So one of the frustrations of meetings is that they often generate more work, but then it's kind of like a little helium balloon gets filled up and it floats away and we have no idea who's grabbing onto it or who's actually going to be doing the thing. And so I'm a big fan of having one action item list. I think it's such a great tool to, to make sure the project can move forward. One thing that people like, I think, about being together in a workplace is the opportunity to be heard. And when people are unhappy at work, that's often the, the crux of it. They, they, they feel overlooked in some ways, but people have different personality types. Some are more outspoken. They grab the floor, others less so. What can a meeting leader do to make sure that everybody is heard uh, especially the ones who are maybe a little bit less likely to to speak up. One of the things to do is to be explicit about what the ground rules are. I know this is kind of hard to do when the meeting has already been happening for 20 years. This is the way we've always done it. But perhaps this is a great opportunity as we re-enter the workplace, have a conversation about what are, are the ground rules for the meeting. But if you you know monitor your own engagement, if you notice that, wow, I've I've been talking this entire time. Maybe I should shut up for a bit and see if other people have something to say, but also inviting people in. So Jim, you haven't had a chance to share your perspectives. I know you've been thinking a lot about this too. Where, what are you thinking and feeling at this point? So inviting people to come in, but also not insisting on it. So if somebody's you know, some of us like to sit and think for a couple hours after the meeting, and that's where the brilliant insights are going to come up. So structuring meetings in a way that don't race the decisions. So we can have our preliminary discussion today, and we're going to make our decision next week, and, and allowing plenty of time in that agenda for a conversation to actually happen. So if you're like, oh, we're going to have five minutes to discuss the merits of this 20-page proposal, guess what? You're going to get really crappy engagement. Many workplaces and, and, and voluntary groups and other group settings are more diverse than ever. But working with people from different backgrounds, ages, who also have different goals in life, can be really hard. What's your advice in helping people be graceful and to cope better with diversity, with people not like them? So I think this is one of those places where two habits of heart and mind kick up is super important. One is the value of curiosity 
And two is the value of intellectual humility. We only have our one perspective to draw from in the deepest way. We are limited. We can't know it all. Um, There's too much information. There's too much complexity. Plus, we only have this one viewpoint. So as soon as we recognize that there's a limit to our own understanding of the world, for me, that opens up then the, the doorway to curiosity. So what does somebody else know or understand that I don't know? And how how can I engage authentically um, with that other person to understand who they are, how they see the world, what their thinking and feeling is about the shared problem? Deb Mashek. And Deb, you have an offer to our listeners for people who want to know more and follow up on this conversation. Yeah, I anticipated we would be covering a lot of ground today. So I put together a short handout just for the how do we fix it listeners and that summarizes some of these key ideas. And you can swing by www.myco.consulting slash fix it to, to download a copy. And you know, while you're there, you're welcome, of course, to visit the rest of the website or reach out to me with any questions you might have about collaboration. Great. And we'll have a link to that on our website. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Deb Mashek. And coming next, a recommendation. Okay, Richard, what have you got for us this week? Well, I was thinking about re-entry, Jim. And one of the re-entry things I did a couple of weeks ago was to go to MoMA in New York, the Museum of Modern Art, which in the past couple of years or so, has been completely um, refurbished and and a bunch of gallery spaces added. And it's such a wonderful place for encountering both old and new ideas on art and design. And I was thinking, wow, it's so great to be back where you're looking at art, where you're contemplating something beautiful or moving. And We've been deprived of that for for quite a long time. So my recommendation is visit a museum near you. Uh, Last week, you were talking about the value of going on walks and, and engaging with the outdoors. This, I guess, is engaging with the indoors. That sounds great. Coming up next, our conversation on collaborations. So, Jim, tell us a story about when you were an editor at Popular Mechanics and you were leading a fairly large team of of journalists and designers and others. How difficult was it to be a team leader? Were there times when collaborating proved to be uh, an awkward encounter? Well, I love this episode with Deb because this is something I've thought about my whole career Uh, Popular Mechanics was the fourth magazine I was editor-in-chief of, but I think by the fourth time, I finally kind of got it figured out. But for me, the biggest part was listening. So magazines are an extremely collaborative effort. On one feature article, you might have the writer, the editor on the story, the the art um, designer who did the layout, the photo editor who assigned the photography, Somebody assigned illustrations or a map or, and all that stuff has to fit together in, you know, four or six pages. So this stuff can be very fraught. And we used to do something we called the wall walk. We would put the whole 
the the layout for the whole issue up on a um, with just push pins up on a wall, and I would say, okay, what do people think? And just be quiet for a minute, and ideas would bubble up. A lot of times there were things I was already thinking, like mm, I'm not so sure this photo follows that photo, or you know, uh, I'm not sure this illustration is working. If I just said it and ordered everybody to fix it, the job would have gotten done, but people wouldn't be as happy. So I would would wait and let people make their own suggestions and then kind of give the appearance of leading from behind a little bit like, okay, yeah, yeah, I agree. That illustration maybe isn't totally working where it is. <laughs> so, um, And often I would hear things I didn't expect that I wouldn't have thought of that were better than the ideas I would have thought of. I think that as we do get older, hopefully we get better at listening. Um, I am used to be terrible at it. I'm now mediocre. It reminds me of one of the groups that we're loosely affiliated with on How Do We Fix It, which is uh, Listen First Coalition. And their message is when you're considering something that's controversial or difficult or awkward, that you do listen first. So I think that's, that's also a good slogan for this moment, especially now that we're uh, re-entering and re-engaging more in person. It's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. This podcast is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Our website is Davies, spelt the Welsh way, DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.